Hello, and welcome back to 90.5 WESA's Good Question podcast. I'm series producer Katie Blackley. Glad you've joined us for more stories about Pittsburgh history and culture. On this episode, we'll head toward our three rivers to learn how water depth is determined and why there are large metal rings fixed to a number of retaining walls. And did you know much of the planning for the creation of a country took place in downtown Pittsburgh? The Slovak Americans and Czech Americans got together and they pushed uh, Washington and London and Paris and um, Rome to actually create a new country for themselves together. Stay with us. WESA's Good Question podcast is made possible with support from the CPA firm Sisterson & Company, Baum Boulevard Automotive, and Eisler Landscapes. Along the 10th Street Bypass and Allegheny Riverfront Trail, large metal rings are fixed to retaining walls. Good Question listeners Mike Ignema and Stuart Williams noticed them along the Allegheny River as they traveled around the city. There are sets of rings and they are spaced about every 50 yards as you go down the 10th Street Bypass. I'm wondering if they're for decorative purposes or if they actually have a purpose at all. There are actually two different sets of rings that they're referring to. There are a series of giant ones attached to columns along the Allegheny River near the point, and there are trios of smaller ones lining the 10th Street Bypass. Both are a nod to the area's past as a commercial hub. The rivers were what brought everything to, to Pittsburgh. That's Pittsburgh history buff Tim Kilmeyer. He says the Allegheny Wharf was the center for industrial traffic, whereas the Monongahela Wharf was mostly used for commerce and social gatherings. Just like everybody would go to Point State Park today, if they feel Point State Park, everybody went to the Mon Wharf to celebrate Pittsburgh stuff. In the early 1900s, Pittsburgh's population had nearly doubled to more than 500,000. Steelworks, brickyards, and train tracks lined the rivers, and barges and freight ships docked nearby to transport products. As automobiles became more common, drivers would park along the rivers. There was no barrier between the water and the land, like a beach. It was a dense environment, and space was running out. So on the Allegheny River side of the city, developers needed a way to route traffic around downtown. Let's use the wharf and we'll build a, a bypass on the wharf, and that's, that's what they came up with. Construction began on what was then known as the Duquesne Way Project, a route parallel to the rail lines leading from the point to the Strip District. But a persistent issue challenged the builders. There's always been, been flooding. Duquesne Way was frequently inundated by the rising Allegheny River. So as workers finished what would become the 10th Street Bypass, barges or passing boats would tie to the rings on the bypass's retaining wall to keep from drifting away. The bypass still floods, but ships no longer use the rings. They've been a lot harder to access since the Allegheny Riverfront Trail was built between the bypass and the river in the late 1990s. That trail is where several even larger rings are attached to concrete columns. Gateway Clipper fleet owner Terry Wargenis says those rings were installed when the wharfs were still bustling. His family's fleet used to tie to them during high water conditions. Like in Hurricane Agnes in 1972, the water came almost all the way up to the surface of the parkway, so we were tied to those ring boys. But beyond those rare instances, they aren't really used. The rings are not part of an old lock system, as some have speculated. While they're not used for their original purpose anymore, they're still popular among passing kids who love to jump and try to swing from them. Ultimately, they're a reminder of the region's rich history of river commerce. Just ahead after the break, we go deeper into those rivers, literally. 
WESA's Good Question podcast is made possible with support from Baum Boulevard Automotive, Eisler Landscapes, and the CPA firm Sisterson & Company. Pittsburgh is known for its rivers, but many residents aren't sure where the bottom of each of the three lie. Could you walk across parts of the Monongahela, hold your breath, and reach the riverbed of the Allegheny? Back in 2018, WESA reporter Kathleen Davis did a deep dive on how far down the rivers go and how they're measured. Listener Judith Hoover has a view of the Allegheny River from her north side home. When snow melts and rain pours, she wonders... How deep the water is for all the rivers. And Wayne Gergerich, a listener from Lawrenceville and an avid paddler, keeps an eye on the newspaper's regular listings of river stages before he goes out on the water. And I'm curious who measures them and how they're measured. Here's the thing. As I start my exploration into river depth, I learn pretty quickly that experts prefer the terms river stage and gauge height to the word depth. Matthew Kramer, a meteorologist with the National Weather Service, says to calculate the river stage, it's important to know the volume at any given spot. The amount of water that a segment of the river can hold is dependent on the width of the river, the height of the river, and the length of the the river segment. Imagine a four-lane highway. When it merges down to two lanes, traffic will back up and slow down because it's the same number of cars in a smaller space. The river works the same way. As a river narrows, water flowing at the same speed will back up and the river stage will increase. The other measurement term, gauge height, has to do with two permanent tools affixed to the Fort Pitt Bridge. Under the bridge at Point State Park is where I meet Jamie McCoy with the U.S. Geological Survey, or USGS. He says the first gauge is called the bubbler system. It's a rusty pipe that runs down the side of a support beam into the water and sits about a foot off the river's bottom. It uses compressed air to force air down a small line into the river and it bubbles, maybe 60 bubbles a minute. And basically the sensor in there can tell the higher the pressure on that, the end of that orifice line, that bubble, we know that if the pressure's going up, the river's going up. If that pressure starts to decrease, the river's going down. So the compressed air is being released into the river at a constant rate. Based on the air pressure, the gauge can calculate how much the river stage is rising or falling. McCoy says it's usually pretty accurate, within two hundredths of a foot. But there's a backup plan in case the bubbler fails. It's called a non-contact sensor. And what that does is use the radar pulse. Every 15 minutes it shoots a pulse, bounces off the river and back, and that sends the elevation to a computer inside. River stage in Pittsburgh is on average between 16 and 17 feet, and that level stays pretty consistent from the point to several miles up both the Allegheny and the Monongahela rivers and down the Ohio to the Emsworth Locks and Dams at Neville Island. When the stage rises to 18 feet, the Monmorph parking lot downtown starts to flood. At 22 feet, the 10th Street bypass on the Allegheny floods. And at 25 feet, the parkway east that hugs the Monmorph fills with water, earning it the nickname the bathtub. But there are controls to keep the river stage consistent most of the time. It's maintained around that 16 to 17 foot level thanks to a system of locks and dams. It exists to help boats navigate the rivers. On the USGS website, river stage data is updated about every 15 minutes for both gauges. And there's actually a little windowless room in one of the Fort Pitt Bridge support beams that houses the tech and computers that ping the gauge height data. Now a lot of this is antiquated stuff, but this is the river gauge put over here. Since Kathleen reported that story, USGS began to offer real-time river stage data on its website 
so Riverside residents, avid kayakers, and curious Pittsburghers can stay informed. As we've learned, these rivers have long been an important part of the city's economy and culture. They made it possible for commerce and industry, and helped guide travelers who would eventually make the region their home. Coming up after the break, how two groups of immigrants came together in Pittsburgh to help solve an international problem. WESA's Good Question podcast is made possible with support from Eisler Landscapes, the CPA firm Sisterson & Company, and Baum Boulevard Automotive. Listener Mindy Schompert from West Newton, PA, recently wondered about a historical marker she saw in downtown about something called the Pittsburgh Agreement. I know that there is a was a large diaspora of Eastern European, primarily Slovak, people in Western Pennsylvania, but there was large concentrations of Slovaks in a lot of coal mining and industrial areas. Why was the Pittsburgh Agreement signed in Pittsburgh? The year was 1918. World War I wouldn't be over for a few months, but the Allied powers of the U.S., France, Britain, and Italy were already starting to think about what to do with a collection of countries known as the Habsburg Empire. It included Slovakia, the Czech state, Hungary, and Poland, and was ruled by Austria-Hungary as part of the central powers of World War I. When we first reported this story in 2017, we spoke with Martin Vortruba, the former head of the Slavic Studies program at the University of Pittsburgh. Vortruba has since died, but during our interview, he explained that after the First World War, tons of Slovaks and Czechs who had immigrated to the United States were paying close attention to the political situation back home. The Slovak Americans and Czech Americans got together and they pushed uh, Washington and London and Paris and um, Rome to actually create a new country for themselves together. Vortruba said these two ethnic groups figured it would be politically and culturally better for both Slovakia and the Czech nation to become one country. That way, they wouldn't lose their ethnic identity by being forced to join with a country completely different from them. Because while they spoke two different languages, Vortruba says they were close enough that they could understand each other and get along well. The Slovak Americans and Czech Americans got together and they pushed uh, Washington and London and Paris and um, Rome to actually create a new country for themselves uh, together. Back in the States, Czech and Slovak immigrants formed a group called the Czechoslovak National Council of America. They'd been working together for a few years when, in May of 1918, they decided to meet and formalize the pact to become one country. Vortruba said Pittsburgh was chosen as the place to ink the deal, the Pittsburgh Agreement, for a few reasons. For one, it was populated by a huge number of Slovaks. There were more Slovaks in the Pittsburgh region than in any other U.S. city. It made sense to have such an important meeting where so many Slovak Americans had made their roots. But the Pittsburgh Agreement signing had to do with the travel plans of a Czech man named Tomas Gehrig Masaryk. Um, he had a good idea about how to organize the country, so he was instrumental and actually he was present at the, at the, uh, when the Pittsburgh Agreement was agreed on. So he was actually here in Pittsburgh. That was the main reason why the whole mean, uh, meeting took place. Masaryk was a social sciences professor who had helped coordinate counter-espionage efforts for the Allies during World War I. He was very popular among Czechs and Slovaks and happened to be in Pittsburgh on Memorial Day in 1918. Memorial Day was a Thursday, the 30th of May. He came to Pittsburgh and they knew that people could actually, because they were off work, they could come and uh, celebrate. 
Vorchuba says the Pittsburgh press wrote that thousands of people filled the streets to get a glimpse of Masaryk. Downtown Pittsburgh was crowded with Slovaks. So there was a large celebration, but uh, the Thursday was only preliminary. It was just a meeting, celebrating, and then Friday was the main time. The next day, Friday, was when members of the Czechoslovak National Council met to talk about what this new combined country would look like, how it would function. It was decided that Czech and Slovak would both be official languages and that it would be run as a democracy. Czechoslovakia ended up being a fairly democratic country. Uh, when Europe was going uh, fascist, totalitarian, uh, it was among the only countries that remained reasonably democratic before World War II began. More than two dozen Czech and Slovak delegates signed the agreement at what was then the Loyal Order of Moose Building on Penn Avenue and 7th Street downtown. Czechoslovakia was officially made an independent country a few months later, and Masaryk became its first president. World War II soon followed, and the country was taken over by Axis forces. After that, it was part of the Soviet bloc until 1989, when there was a nonviolent transition of power known as the Velvet or the Gentle Revolution. It ended communism, restored democracy, and Czechoslovakia split into two separate countries again. They are the best of friends. When you ask them how they like, you know, the nationalities around them, they always say, the Czechs say the Slovaks are their most favorite nation, and the Czechs say the, the Slovaks say the Czechs are their most favorite nation. Now there's the Slovak Republic, and there's the Czech Republic. Virchuba said because the two countries were willing to come together during uncertain political times, it actually helped them maintain their individual cultural identities. You can see the Pittsburgh Agreement plaque downtown. It's in a parking lot near the Andy Warhol Bridge, whose parents, by the way, were Slovak immigrants. That's today's episode. Special thanks to Patrick Doyle and everyone at Pittsburgh Community Broadcasting. I'm Katie Blackley. Stay curious.